think defense lawyers are great. Welcome to the Georgia Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers podcast with your host, Georgia criminal defense lawyer, Scott Key. He once told a client who'd been giving him lip, quote, son, I will climb Mount Everest for you, but I won't walk across the goddamn street for, for bullshit. Welcome to the Georgia Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers podcast. This is the premiere episode of our new podcast. And in episode 001 of the Gatdell podcast, notice how I did that with three digits because I hope that we will be into the three digits at some point in this endeavor. In episode 001 of the Gatdell podcast, I interview attorney and author Jason Sheffield. Jason is an officer with GACDL, a noted speaker and teacher on trial advocacy, and an attorney with Decatur law firm Peters Rubin in Sheffield. His new book, Son of a Bitch, is available for electronic download to the Kindle or the Kindle app from Amazon. It is also available on the Nook and through other websites of major booksellers. And it is available on the shelves of many local Atlanta bookstores. And in today's show, I'm going to talk to Jason about his story of growing up, the son of a noted criminal defense attorney, and his often reluctant journey to law school and to becoming a criminal defense attorney. Jason also offers advice on being a successful trial lawyer. And in so being a successful trial lawyer and criminal defense attorney, also being a fantastic human being. We will dive deep into some of the central conflicts of his semi-autobiographical novel, including the struggles women have faced and face in the legal profession, as told through Carter Scales, the mother of the book's protagonist. And we will talk about all that is messy, fraught, but that can ultimately be redemptive in the attorney-client relationship and how that is on display in his novel. This podcast is a production of the Georgia Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, whose mission is to promote fairness and justice through membership, education, services and support, public outreach, and commitment to quality representation for all. If you don't already know about Gactel, we would encourage you to check us out on our website, which is gacdl.org. And now, without further delay, I give you episode one, my interview with author Jason B. Sheffield. I'm here for the very first um, Gactel podcast. This is episode 001. And I'm here with Jason Sheffield, who is a partner at Peters Rubin Sheffield, a criminal defense attorney and now an author. And of course, when I say the title of this book, it's going to remove our ability to get a clean tag from Apple, Son of a Bitch, Inspired by True Events. Um, Welcome to the first podcast. This is very exciting, Scott. This is like monumental stuff for Gactel. We are pioneers. So... 
Without spoiling the plot, I want to get a little bit into your new book, and I want to talk to you about how uh, you came to be a lawyer. So tell me a little bit about your background. I uh, started off when I was around 10 years old deciding that I was never, under any circumstances, going to become a lawyer. I thought being a lawyer was a horrifically despicable career after watching my mom be a lawyer uh, for, for most of my childhood. And I thought, there's no way in hell that I will ever do that. I was, I was going to become a doctor like my grandfather, do something respectable. Um, my journey forked many times from there, and ultimately I became uh, a lawyer when I went back to law school at 29 years old. So, so you I, went back to law school. So I, were you in law school at one point in time, and then you went back? I shouldn't say that I went back to law school. I should okay. say I went to law school. All right. I wanted to be a doctor, so I was trying to get into medical school, and it was very difficult to get into medical school. You had to be really smart and test well, and I didn't do that well. And so I was working in an emergency room, uh, trying to get into medical school, and decided at 22 years old, screw it. I am not going to be a doctor. I'm going to be an actor. So I started acting and started writing in Atlanta in 1996. Well, let's back up for a second. So you you said from watching your mom, Uh uh, from your mom being a lawyer, that you thought it was a, I don't want to, I'm trying to remember what you said. Not, I said despicable, horrifically despicable career. What, what, tell me about your initial impressions of your mom practicing law and, and what that meant and, and what, what was it that was despicable about it? It actually had nothing to do with the actual practice of law. It just had everything to do with the fact that when my mom would come home at night and we would have dinner together, after dinner she would get phone calls from clients. And I thought that that was so intrusive into our life and that she had to spend time on the phone with clients, that that was just, um, that was not fair. I mean, I was 10, 11, 12, you know, and I thought, um, what kind of career makes you work after work hours? And so for that reason, I thought. And that was before smartphones. That was was before, I think, answering machines. So she was obviously giving clients her home phone number. She was. We, we, we regularly received collect calls from federal penitentiaries, uh, and I was taught very quickly how to answer the phone properly. But my mom was very dedicated to her clients and made herself available to them 24 hours a day. And your mom, I mean, just knowing your mom and knowing some stories you've told me, was, a, was essentially did a lot of mob work. Yeah, she very early in her career was working in the trial court system of Atlanta and working and doing criminal defense and criminal defense trials. But soon thereafter, she was asked to represent somebody who was connected but not ultimately you know, deep within the organized crime family. But she was asked to do a case, and she did very well for that person and got them paroled early from federal prison. And that was a great success story, and it led to another ask to do similar work for another person who was kind of connected. And it was after she did the same thing for that person that her name spread like wildfire, because before that guy, that second gentleman, was released uh, on parole, he told everybody about her in the federal prison that he was housed in. And that federal prison was then quickly soon thereafter shut down, but not before all the inmates got to learn her name. And uh, within a matter of months, she was called upon to start doing work. 
uh, post-conviction work for organized crime and the, and the associates. And you would then take these calls when they would call. What, what, so so my, what were those phone calls like? Yeah, well, that was very interesting because I didn't know anything about anything, but I, I understood that she was doing very important work for very important people. And she was very committed to that. But it wasn't like they could just call and say, may I speak to Linda? There was a whole thing with an operator who would say, you get a collect call from this penitentiary. Will you accept? And I had to be taught to accept. And of course, because I accepted, I was the first person to talk to the, you know, to the client who was calling. So it, it, it led to some instruction on how to take that phone call, but then it led to some conversation with those guys and, and conversation about you know how they were doing and whatnot. Did you get to know these guys, or did they know you by voice? They certainly knew me by voice. I, we, we got to exchange a few pleasantries, and, and then my mom would take the call. Is, and, was it like the movies? Was it like uh, Goodfellas? Was it, was it that kind of accent? And Well, in terms, of, uh, in terms of the accent, yes, these are all guys who were— you know, up from New York and, and up up north, and so yeah, there were some there were some great accents which I quickly began to try to interpret and and uh, and, and mimic, imitate. And then, so I, I know that your character is inspired by true events, and that uh, there's a there's a point in the book where the the protagonist is Benjamin Scales. Mm-hmm. And he actually goes to New York and kind of goes on an adventure with like one like the family of one of the clients. Is that something you did as a kid? Right. So the the book is is whole cloth fiction. Um, it is inspired by true events in that I'm a lawyer, criminal defense lawyer. My mother's a criminal defense lawyer, and she represented these really great clients. Um, but that's about where it ends. So a lot of the stories that are in the book and a lot of the things that happen in the book are not true. Um, that story in the book about when Benjamin goes up to New York with Carter Scales, his mother, and she goes on business and he gets a ride around with two of the younger members goes of the family. Goes to a pizza place. That's right. Goes to a pizza place, is riding in the car. No, that, that didn't happen exactly like that. I did go up to New York. I did get an opportunity to meet some of the family. I did uh, get to meet you know some people and, and, and form some relationships, but it, I took it to the next level in the book because I really wanted Benjamin to have a wild experience and I wanted him to be submerged in the heart of, of that kind of family life and that kind of notoriety. And so in your grandfather, what kind of doctor was he? My grandfather was a small town uh, general specialist <clears throat> who ultimately, um, <clears throat> if I remember correctly, um, he was a general specialist. <clears throat> he did a lot of OBGYN type stuff, birthed a lot of babies. He did everything. He traveled around the, the counties and, and delivered the babies, doc, Dr. Silvert. Um, he then... Uh, also did a surgery specialty, and I think once he moved away from there, he did more surgery and, and more advanced, you know, type procedures. But in the small town, you know, he birthed a lot of babies, I think, and did other little small things. And that was something as a child that you looked up to? Absolutely. I, 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 I visited my grandfather, you know, several times a year. I got to know him as a doctor. I got to understand his history. <clears throat> I loved uh, medicine. I love biology. I was very passionate about it, and I was very passionate about following in his footsteps. I like. I love the idea of helping people and working with families. And, and science and biology were my favorite subjects. Which is interesting, because probably a doctor gets called out in the middle of the night, or, or, 
after normal work hours as much as, if maybe not more than an attorney. Sure. So they shared that. They had that common uh, that common experience, I guess, working for their clients or patients at all hours of the day and night. Um, I certainly think my mother could identify with that and being on call. So she certainly saw a lot of that. Um, in a way, when you have to respond to those situations, you're, you're kind of a hero to those people. And I think it's very satisfying to be the one person that says, you know what, when you're in the middle of that problem, whether it's a medical problem or a legal problem, you can call me and I'll be there for you. Mm-hmm. So how much of you is in, this, is in the character of Ben Scales, who's in the book? Well, I think there are parts of me that I have pulled from to to have Benjamin kind of express himself as a character. Um, Benjamin Scales is somewhat wry, uh, sardonic. He's 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 angry. He's jealous. He's flawed. Uh, he's not perfect when it comes to women. He's not perfect when it comes to school. Um, so there's a lot of those characteristics that I share with Benjamin Scales. Um, and to the extent that I could use my own thoughts, feelings, and emotions, you know, to put those into Benjamin's characters, you know, I think that's a good thing. So I think I do have a fairly wry sense of humor at times. I, um, I certainly, over the course of my life as a kid and, and growing up, have felt angry about things. I felt jealous about things. Um, I am not perfect. I'm not the best student. So there's a there's a lot of overlapping similarities there in terms of the the emotions and the feelings and the thoughts that are kind of beneath the surface. But you, just like Benjamin Scales, were, you were never going to go to law school. You hated the idea of going to law school. You uh, pursued medicine. You you actually worked in the medical field for a little while, as did Benjamin before he goes to law school. So say a little bit about your medical background, what, what you did. Um, I, I was pre-med biology at Clemson University, uh, where I really wanted to get into some form of medicine I didn't know. When I was having difficulty getting into medical school, I thought, you know what? let me go and work at an emergency room and let me be around it and let me get experience. I'd always taught, you know, try it on, see if it fits. And so I began to work in an emergency room at Scottish Rite Children's ER here in Atlanta. It's now Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Scottish Rite. Um, And I did that to try to get experience and to try to help me become more um, of a better candidate for law school, I mean for medical school. And I that wasn't that. a Fortean slip at all. It wasn't. It wasn't. No. And so my my medical background or experience was limited to to that. But I worked at Scottish Rite ER for five and a half years. Uh, even after I decided I didn't want to go to medical school, I was going to do this acting and writing thing. Um, I still stayed there for another four years. Were you doing any acting and writing when you were at, when you were at Scottish Rite? Yeah, so I graduated undergraduate in 1995. And you went to Clemson, went to right? Clemson, yeah, that's right. Graduated in 1995. Then I started working at the ER in January of '96, and by '97 uh, I was acting and writing. And you, were you pre-med undergrad? Yes. Okay. Yeah, biology, biological sciences major. And what kind of stuff? Would you see like how graphic would it get at the ER? 
the the emergency room for kids is a little different from like a Grady emergency room where you have adults coming in with, you know, bullets in their head and you've got knives in the back and you've got all kinds of things. But don't let it fool you just because it's called a children's ER. You you really do see a lot of crazy types of situations that play out. A lot of it, I would say 60% of it is, you know, small children that are having coughs or fevers or, you know, vomiting, diarrhea scenarios. And that can be really detrimental to kids. But every now and then you get a, you get a helicopter that lands mm-hmm. or an ambulance that parks in the back and flies through the back door with a kid on a stretcher who's facing some fairly critical, crazy type things. And so, and you're doing some acting at that time as well? I was, yeah. All right. So were you like in a theater or were you, what kind of stuff were you doing so as the, an actor? The, the, what was available really is the question in Atlanta back in 1997. I mean, Atlanta in 1997 was not the Atlanta of 2017. So there was no big movies being made here, no television being made here. There was a lot of corporate work that you could do for Coke and you could do internal videos. They called industrial videos. That was good money. You could do national. So like, these are like training videos, like safety training videos and stuff like exactly. that. Exactly. Where you would play the role of the boss who was sexually harassing somebody and they, you would have to freeze frame because then the other guy would walk in the screen and say, now this is a situation <laughs> that you want to try to avoid. And you were always cast as the guy who was sexually harassing somebody. I was always somebody. cast as the guy who was sexually no. I, um, I You could also do national commercials. You could do regional commercials. So you were doing film work. You were doing like commercial film work. Commercial and film are two different things. Okay, right? okay. So commercials for television, so Coke and you know shoe shoe commercials or car commercials or whatever. Um, but there was also some television work. A movie of the week would come through, uh, or it was also the time of independent film. So there was a lot of people trying to do independent films. So very early on, so you get I, on with a group of people that were, were trying to produce something. Absolutely. So within about a year. I got in with a group that was trying to write and produce their own films. And were you writing and also acting? Absolutely. Did you do any directing? I didn't. Uh, Directing was what I really wanted to do. And after um, I had been writing for a while, I started trying to raise money for a film that I had written. And I was in the process of raising about one and a half million dollars to try to make that film. Back then, you could make a movie for that. You probably still can, but it it won't be as as top-notch as movies these days. Okay, and then were you, did you have an agent and do all of that? Were you doing all of that stuff? I did. I had two agents. I had a, a, a television film agent and I had a print agent uh, where if you wanted to go take a lifestyle, you know, photo shoot with you sipping coffee out of a mug that was going to be featured for some, you know, ceramic company or whatever. So I had, I had two agents at that time. I was also doing theater. So I was, I was auditioning and performing in local theater around Atlanta. I actually uh, did several plays and one musical, and that was that was my theater experience. What was the musical? The musical was called Mating Habits of the Urban Mammal. It was a kind of Friends-ish kind of musical play about single somethings living in the city trying to date and find love, and uh, it was it was played right here in Decatur. Okay, mm-hmm. all right, and so all the, and this is this overlaps with Scottish Rite. Or is this after so from, Scottish Rite? No, during the time I was at Scottish Rite, from 1997 all the way up uh, to 2000 when I left, and then for an additional two years after Scottish Rite where I was just acting full-time. Right. So tell me about law school, the decision to go to law school. Ooh, that's a very 
uh, it's a very personal question. Um, it was law school came about because of a of an emotional breakdown that I had. I was I had just gotten married. I'd been married for almost a year. Uh, still married after 17 years. It was a time when I was trying to raise this money for a film, and I was having a lot of difficulty doing it. It was very hard to raise a million and a half dollars when you're a nobody in Atlanta. And I became so overwhelmed with the with trying to raise that money and how am I going to do this and am I going to make it? I'd been married for a year. Uh, I was 28 years old and I suddenly felt overwhelmed with the the belief that I was not where I was supposed to be. And here I was married. I wanted to provide. I wanted to grow a family. I wanted to have kids. I'm trying to do that on, you know, $12,000 a year or $18,000 a year acting was just impossible. And I just had an emotional crisis, a quarter, a true quarter life crisis where I just didn't know what I was doing. And my mother always, you know, being my net in my life and always being there for me, she said to me, you know, I've always thought you should go to law school. Okay, so Ben goes to law school in secret and doesn't tell his mom. This is correct. And she finds and she finds out later that he's a lawyer. That's right. But this is not this is not a this plot twist not, in your life. This is not no in, in real life, my mother was the one that gave me the advice to go. And I followed her advice, and I have uh, been forever grateful for her encouragement. Now, in the book, Ben uh, goes to law school because he has a very personal experience with law enforcement. He gets stopped with several of his African-American friends, and they're treated unfairly. And he wants revenge on the officers. And so he, he decides that he's going to go to law school and stick up for the, the little guy or the, or the unfairness that he saw that day. How he doesn't you, tell his mother. How did you get over the disgust about law? Like, how did you having this personal crisis? Well, that, was a, that was a very immature, you know, <laughs> thought that I had about the law. It was, you know, from the perspective of a 10 year old kid who wanted to watch television with his mom at night, but she was working. Um, what I decided is that. So it wasn't some philosophical thing. It wasn't like, how can you defend these people or. You know, how can you stick up for people that are guilty? It wasn't any of that. It was just literally, this was like the law. I mean, they say the law is a jealous mistress, but maybe, maybe in the in the in the mother son context, it's it competes with your mother's attention. Absolutely, and, and and you know, every everybody that has a child, when the child wants to do something with the parent, the parent says, "No, I can't do that." The, you know, the kid complains and whines about it. Um, you know, I was I was just the same as any other little kid when it came to that. I loved spending time with her and doing things with her, but she was very busy on important things. For me, at that moment, I was able to justify going to law school um, to do something I said I was really never going to do, okay? Because that wasn't the first time my mother had suggested I become a lawyer, okay? But I thought, if I go to law school, it can help me in the film business, how so? How could it help you? Because the as a lawyer, you 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 are at a certain status, and I felt like if I could get in and make it and, and acquire that status, that I could say I'm not just a kid raising money for a film. I'm a lawyer raising money. I'm an attorney uh-huh. raising money for a film. That's Were you right. thinking you would do entertainment law? Did Absolutely. You? I thought uh-huh. I will do entertainment law. Uh, but entertainment law is contracts when you really come, when you really get down to it, and that is boring as hell. And what happened when I went to law school is first and foremost, the education is 
incredible, right? You 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 feel like you get to see behind the, think, the curtain, the thinking of the world. like a lawyer stuff. Yeah, you you get mm-hmm. to see behind the world curtain. You get to see what's really happening in real relationships in everyday life, and you are in the know about those things. You're part of the the secret conversation, right? You're like you finally get to look behind the curtain and see the Wizard of Oz for what it really is. I love that about law school. And I was 30 years old when I went, so I had some life experience. Not not only that, but I think. I mean, honestly, a lot of people should do the first year of law school. I don't know that a lot of people who don't want to be lawyers should do the second and third year of law school. Mm. But the thought process, if I never became a lawyer, I think, and, and maybe your experience is different from mine, but I felt, I felt like the whole thinking like a lawyer thing, the whole, I don't know, and that may mean something different to you than me, but the, um, the idea that you, well, the idea of, of some life situation that is, probably terrible and tragic to somebody you 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 learn a term in your first year of law school that's called a fact pattern Mm. so and i still think when people come in you know at some deep level okay what's the fact pattern right I, i agree with you in in especially the way that law school poses really more questions to you that first year although you're getting a lot of information it it poses questions to you to think about and the more you think about things the more you exercise a way to begin to understand how to solve problems just simply by asking questions, you know, kind of like what four-year-olds do. They always ask why, 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 why. Well, law school forces you to keep asking those questions until you learn that really what's important is that you get to the bottom of issues. And when you get to the bottom of issues and you and you solve those things, you feel really powerful, right? You feel informed. You feel like you're in the know. And I love that about law school. And, and then when I started taking criminal classes, it was like easy because I had been around criminal issues. And so I felt a kinship to those issues in a way that I never had before. All right. So I'm, um, I'm just going to read to you from page 34 in your book. And this is, um, this is in chapter six, a chapter titled The High Road and the Low One. And uh, you write in here, unlike my mother's generation, my generation struggled with our identity. We didn't have a great war or a great movement. We had MTV and Cosmo and entertainment television. Even without Facebook, society society was busy constantly thrusting other people's dreams, success stories, and happiness into our faces. I, like many of my friends, didn't get practical with my future and sign on to a particular career or trade simply because my parents had done it or because it was the opportunity presented to me. I had big plans that involved my heart and not my head. It is one of the reasons why I knew I would never be a lawyer. How much do you identify with that uh, with that paragraph personally? Well, I don't identify with that paragraph in terms of it concluding with you. You know, you can't follow your heart if you really if you want to be a lawyer. You can't follow your heart. Um, that is why I'm a lawyer now because I think what what I am privileged um, enough to do now, uh, it's all about heart. Uh, you have to let your brain catch up to your heart in doing criminal defense work because, you know, you just bleed for your clients and you got to find a way intellectually to get through it. But that statement in the book was meant to draw the line for Ben, the character, who was saying that uh, he absolutely felt like it was reprehensible to do what his mother did. And then for him to change, 
would be something. It would be an, it would be a significant change for the character. So that that really underscores a writing technique that I think is really important when you're writing a, a book about characters. This whole question, though, of identity coming from you know Grant and MTV was more of a force then than it was now. We're about the same age. Cosmo Entertainment Television. How, how much do you think our professional and personal identity is formed by things like MTV or, I guess now it would be social media? Well, I, I really want to understand the question. I mean, I, 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 I... If you're talking about the idea of identity and where identity comes from, uh-huh. okay, I think that it's a, it's a really significant, important thing to think about. And I, I think about identity a lot. Because I feel that people do things or, or speak certain things or they wear certain things or they participate in certain activities or go and do certain things because it gives them identity. It gives them association. If you wear these kinds of clothes, in a way, it gives mm-hmm. you identity and association. Mm-hmm. If you smoke cigarettes or if you drink a certain brand of liquor or if you belong to a certain profession or you only vacation here, or you only drive this, all of that is is, is granting the person a, a license to that identity. And so for you, what law school represented is a way to, to achieve a certain status where you would be taken more seriously in the entertainment business. It, at that moment where I made that decision, my thought was not about how can I help people as a criminal defense lawyer. It was, I want to be an actor and a writer and a director but I am failing right now in my life. I felt like I was, and I need to do something. That is an identity that I think will help me. It was a very simplistic or even shallow uh, observation or, or decision that I was making, but I thought I need something to raise me to the next level. And so you show up your first day of law school. What's law school like? Um, well, at Georgia State, uh, it was very nuts and bolts. It was all about we have provided a platform for your education, and we're going to give you some good, great, you know, great teachers, and the rest is up to you. It, it wasn't a ton of handholding. It's very much an. Ur- I went there. It's uh-huh. very much an urban. At the time, they're in a nice facility now, but back then, you were at the place I went, right. which is urban and kind of gritty, right and you felt like you were learning to be a street lawyer there. It was functional, and mm-hmm. there was a there was a general there was a, a a general air about it when you compared the other institutions that had a lot of kind of paper time being exalted as the great institutions in Georgia, like Emory or University of Georgia. Georgia State wasn't there yet in the minds of everybody, although the professors and the information that you got it was road ready, right. And the students from Georgia State passed the bar at a level equal to or exceeding in some years of that of Emory and University of Georgia. When you were there, was it a lot of not... I think it's more, in terms of the student body now, mm-hmm. I think it's more of a traditional law school. It was a, it was a definite... I think it had, it had lost the complete air of like a night school like a night law school, although that was an element. That, that, was, that was still kind of part of the identity. But it, was, it a, was it a second career, um, non-traditional student sort of place when you were there? There, were, uh, uh, there was a smaller percentage of students coming straight out of you know, undergraduate where you would ex- be experiencing you know, a lot of 24, 25-year-old students at these other law schools 
the mean age was you know 27, 28 years old at Georgia State, which means that some people had, a lot of the students had a lot of life experience. So it, it carried that attitude. You know, like we're not just a bunch of college graduates here. We're people who really want to be in law school. Um, I didn't connect with that right away. I thought I'm here because I need to get a leg up on this dream that I have of, of being in entertainment business. So how did law school change you? Um, <clears throat> or, or, how did, or how did your goal change for what you wanted? It, it opened my eyes to the, the, the value of the information. And because I immediately saw the value of the information, I thought to myself, I can really make something different out of my life here, I, I can really do something important. I didn't think that movies was important. I thought it was fun. I thought it would be a fun career. But I had always stressed over how I was going to survive in it. When I went to law school and I really got into it, I realized I can really have a life. I can really be, I can, I can be a provider. I can do something that's fascinating. And I started to see a career. I started to see how I could be successful and use where I had come from. So I started to shift away from, I'm not going to be here to try to enhance an entertainment career. I'm actually going to become a trial lawyer. And then it was, well, do I want to be a civil lawyer? That's just That, that wasn't as interesting to me. Do I want to be a prosecutor? I couldn't do that. I didn't identify with that. So I was like, oh, my God, am I really going to become a criminal defense lawyer? And so my first year of law school was, again, trying on lots of hats. So I went to work for an entertainment attorney, for a divorce attorney, for a civil firm, and a criminal defense attorney. And I did all four of those firms you know, in small increments over the course of two semesters of my first year in law school to try it on. A big piece of, and we'll, we'll come back to kind of your emerging law career in a minute, but a big piece of this, and, and, and I, read, when I read this book when it first came out over the summer, and thank you. And when and when I read, you may have been the first person to order the book, Scott. I may have been. I really I think you have might been. have been. When um, when I read when I read about your mom's well or Carter Scales' experience, and I'm sure this probably reflects on what your mom's experience was like as a female attorney in the '70s and '80s. Um, there's a lot in here about judges mainly judges, sometimes clients, uh, to maybe to a limited extent, I don't recall there being prosecutors, but what a tough gig this was to be a female attorney, particularly, particularly an attractive female attorney in the seventies and eighties, when I guess being a female attorney was a bit of a novelty still at, at best, sometimes just a complete lack of respect and inability to get good cases. And at its worst, like actual, I mean, actual sexual harassment. Actual Which we don't have going on in this country anymore. No, not at all. I'm glad that's over. <laughs> what, what, it, what, what was your, as a kid, what was your, did, did you know that your mom was going through these things? Well, what I knew about my mother predominantly is that she loved her career. There was no, there was no discussion between she and I about these horrible things that happened to her. So a lot of the quote-unquote horrible things that happened to Carter Scale, that is not direct information that I got from my mother that I played out in this book. But what I did understand from her is that things were a lot different with men back then. Uh, for example, you, a woman, you go out to eat with a man and the waitress comes up and the man might say to the waitress, 
honey, you got a great set of tits. Mm-hmm. Right there in front of you, the woman, and the waitress. And the waitress say, oh, well, thank you. You know, it was just SOP, right? And right. it was just sort of tolerated. So my mom was very much in a boys' club, but she had a way of dealing with it as it was just sort of standard operating procedure. But there were times where I understood later, as I have you know asked her about her experiences and things, where I have learned that there were some moments that were very awkward and uncomfortable where she had to you know say that's not going to happen and that's not right because I mean I think at least Carter flips the script she she learns to sort right. of use some of that and I don't want to talk about this in a way that's terrible but she uses it in a way that's sort of em- empowering to her and sort of turns the table on them I you're right Carter as a as a character is a great character because she is able to not kind of complain about it, but she's able to take all that negative energy that's coming to her and kind of grab it by the back of the shirt and flip it over and then stand over it and say, I got you. You're not going to get me. And I love the way that that character, that we get to see a small portion of the way she struggled through that until her skin grew thicker and she grew these sort of thicker scales. And I think for at least Ben Scales, who's the the protagonist in the book, part of, you know, they, he and his mom have a tremendous... I, I would think the main conflict... I mean, in a way, I think your novel's a coming-of-age novel. In a way, your novel is also about a... The central conflict, I think, in the book is... Well, I don't know if it's so much the the mom is in a precar- is in a precarious legal situation, mm-hmm. so that's that's a conflict in the book. But it seems like to me, as the reader, the central conflict in the book is the conflict between Benjamin Scales and Carter Scales, who are two hard headed, strong willed people who are more alike than they might care to acknowledge. Agreed. And part of the part of the the way that that rec- that relationship s- seems to be healed in the book is. When Ben realizes everything his mom went through, yeah, you're right. The, the the conflict that she experiences and the problem that is central to her losing her law license and the the ethical infraction that that Carter commits, that is a vehicle for she and her son to to have to kind of come together, or that she uses to force their their reunion. But ultimately, the the biggest battle of the book, and hopefully what the the audience sees as as hard-fought and and deservedly won, is that they come together again and accept each other for who they are. That Ben accepts himself, that Ben accepts his mother, that that she feels that, that she accepts him, and that they ultimately kind of work through that. That is the the story I wanted to tell. And, And all of the problems that they face, either personally or jointly, are all the things that should keep them apart, just like we have lots of problems in our own life with people in our lives. But I felt like if there was a way that I could throw everything I could at these two characters and and literally try to destroy their lives with individual problems and joint problems, that if I could find a way to have them survive it, that that would be, hopefully, the beautiful message of the book. And not only is this an attorney-client, I mean, not only is this a mom-son conflict, I feel like there's something universal in this, even though they're related. You know, Ben Ben comes to well, he he he's given the invitation to you know if this were an epic, 
novel. I mean, if it, in, in the sort of the epic, um, the Joseph Campbell sense of hmm. how a how a plot is to be structured. You know, there's always the call to adventure. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the hero is the hero's called, journey. The hero's so, journey. Right. The hero is called to something, and, right. and it seems like for Ben, the call to adventure is the call to represent his mother mm-hmm. in this legal conflict. And I'm not going to spoil anything, but um, it seems to me that that's also if you take out the fact that they're mom and son, that's also the invitation. Anytime a client comes in. And you're you're potentially going to represent this person. How much of the dynamic between Ben and his mom is also kind of a universal attorney-client issue, or or, or an attorney-client story? It's it's a it's a great observation, and it's it's one of the tools that Ben ultimately uses to to make the decision to represent Carter, which is. Ben is able to fall back on the idea that that everybody deserves a, a, a help, even their... even the mom that he sort of hates at that moment. Well, and it's it's funny because if he if he can give it to you know this person who commits a murder and takes somebody's life, but he can't give it to his mother, then what kind of lawyer is he? He might easily be able to answer that question as a son. As a son, forget it. But he's really been asked to take on this role as a lawyer. His problem is that he's also the son, which is the conflict, right? And so it, the fact that he has to put on his lawyer hat first to get himself taking the steps to help his client, who is his mother, um, at least that gets him moving. And once he gets moving, he then begins to start to find some personal satisfaction from doing it as well, which is, which is the, the point. And there's something kind of redemptive in that for both of them that beyond the mother-son conflict, I think is can happen in an attorney-client conflict because there there are times when I personally, just because of some of the dynamics in the relationship, I don't think my client particularly likes me. Sometimes like I represent to the client the problem he's having or she is having. Uh, sometimes the advice that we must give is not is not something that they want to hear. Um, and you know, I, I think a lot of there's a lot of intensely emotional attorney-client relationships that you have to work through some things that ultimately I think is redemptive to the client and the attorney. It's a good point, and it's, I think it was your kind of your initial question too, which is how do we relate this to what we're doing? And when your client comes to you and has all of these. You know, legal problems, you know, one of the very first things you start to do is you start to get into their personal problems, right, that led to the ultimate legal problem. And when you do that, you begin to formulate opinions about this person that you have to help. And you you may begin to say, you know, how am I going to represent this person? I mean, I know as a lawyer he's entitled to it, but how am I personally going to do this? And I certainly, just as you, you know, can draw from that experience. I think the longer you do this, the easier it is to remove that personal layer from your decision-making process, and you can you're able to focus on your client Cause externally. Because you know the, the the whole Jerry Spence like idea of of, and I don't I don't know that I, I mean I respect the lawyers that go there, and I respect I've never been so I don't know what it's like, but I know that they really emphasize get down in your client's skin and you know walk a mile in your client's shoes and 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 sort of become the client and. I like a little bit more clinical distance. I, I I think part of what they come to us for is objectivity, but 
But the more, I think the older I get as a lawyer, the more I see that you kind of need a little bit of both. I think it's fair and even necessary to do to do what I've never been to Jerry Spence's class, but I, if you can fully allow yourself to get into your client's ultimate intimate life experiences, and you can add all those up together and understand what the sum of those things are, I think that is the the true starting point. I mean, to do what we're talking about, you've not even crossed the starting line yet. You've got to get into your client's intimate past to even begin. And then, only then, can you try to make that perspective, the sum of that perspective, then the goal is trying to make that perspective relevant to a jury to ultimately convince them that your client's not guilty. So I think you have to do that. Um, In the story, Ben doesn't want to do it because it's his mom and he doesn't like her and he's estranged from her. But, But as a lawyer, he says, you know, this is what I have to do as a lawyer. And so by doing it, He's ultimately able to realize a personal, you know, goal and journey for himself. Which, to your point, and the last thing I'll say, is that when you do that, you can actually find yourself changing, even though you represent people who are despised by the rest of the world. Why do you think so many attorneys develop addiction issues or serious mental health issues? I mean, it's a it's a problem. It's a problem, and I think I've read I read somewhere that by your third year of law school. 30% of law students um, have some sort of mental health condition. And we all know lawyers that have, you know, lost control or, you know, been been sort of just sort of lost everything. I mean, we've known some successful lawyers that have sort of lost their bar license or been been indicted for things. What, what, why do you think, what do you think it is about the law that, that we have so many personal struggles? Well, I, I don't feel that I can be the ultimate person to to step into the shoes of people who have really, really suffered, um, you know, great, you know, mental injury or, or insult from working in the law or developing addiction issues. But I certainly have struggled with, with stress. I've struggled with anxiety. I've struggled with depression, you know, throughout the course of my 44 years of life. And we, we know that that's a real that's a real clinical thing for, for everybody, for the most part. Um, put that to one side. I think we've come to learn by meeting our clients and their families and the, the thought processes and decisions that they've made that even the smallest error in judgment can lead to a catastrophic consequence. Even in the smallest case. Like, like, like even, in a, even in a traffic offense, if you're not careful, you can plead a client guilty to something where in about a month they get a letter from the Department of Driver Services telling them the driver's license is suspended. Right, right. So we can make small errors as, as lawyers that impact our clients, but we, we also learn that our clients make small errors in judgment to go to the party that they probably shouldn't have gone to or to stay in the relationship that they probably shouldn't have stayed in or to have a gun on them that night when they go to the club. Um, those small errors in judgment then lead to huge catastrophic things. So on the subject of addiction and problems and stress, I think it's a combination of, of not responding either quickly enough or, or totally enough or even appreciating that you may be going through something that is going to cause you to start making small bad decisions that are going to grow and get out of control. And if you, if you can say to yourself, I know as a criminal defense lawyer 
that I am going to be stressed. I know that I'm going to be, you know, anxious. I know that I'm going to be experiencing, you know, biological, physiological, you know, chemical problems as a lawyer. And that may cause me to take out my anger on my family. Or that may cause me to go get a drink after work and then get two drinks after work. I think it's you have to recognize that these are significant issues that are real for, for all of us. And, and there's only two solutions to that. Number one is to always be proactive in the way you deal with it. And the second is to try to develop ways in your practice to avoid those situations altogether. The proactive being, I'm feeling stressed, I'm feeling this, I need to go take care of that. The, the other proactive is, I'm going to run my practice a certain way. Mm-hmm. And by running it this way, I'm going to help myself avoid those situations that I'll then have to go get help for. And that's low volume. Well, it, That's it, having friends. It, it, <laughs> that's right. It, 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 it's, it's taking time for yourself. It's drawing the line of when you're available to your clients and when you're not. I do think it's in taking less cases and, and, and trying to figure out how you can do that. Um, and it's it's not necessarily that you have to take cases that aren't quite as stressful, but it's 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 setting things in place that when you do your work, you do it a particular way, you manage your clients, because your clients bring a whole level of stress and anxiety to you at all times, as do their families. And I think there's a way of interacting with them to set their expectations and to remove all of that kind of, you know, hand-to-hand combat with your client and make it more kind of distant and, and keep yourself out of all that, that conflict. Right. Because you, you, sometimes you get people, even, even innocent people are sometimes accused as a, of things because of poor judgment on their part. They wouldn't be accused. Well, I want to make a blanket statement here, but innocent people are accused because in my experience, I won't, I won't say about all innocent people because there's a lot of nefarious, you know, people out there that do things for bad reasons. But in my experience, most people are falsely accused because they are in bad situations with other people who have serious deficits in judgment or who have intentions that are bad or, um, you know, just have psychological problems. And their judgment doesn't suddenly get great after they hire you and you were... You know, you're, you're the person that's that you're the person that deals with them, and a lot of times they don't take your advice. Or they do they, they do things that don't make any logical sense to you, and I guess you're probably advising in the things that that don't necessarily make logical sense to them. Well, a lot of their behavior is based on patterns in life that they've been doing for most of their life. They're in this relationship because they've always been in that relationship, or they act this way because they've always acted that way. And just because you tell them don't act that way and don't be in that kind of relationship doesn't mean that they can break that pattern. So they, they do. They slip back into their old patterns and they make more mistakes and they do things that you told them not to do. But that's the people that we work with. And and they want and, and you are the lifeline, so they want to talk to you all the time. I'll talk to you all the time. That's right. That's all right. right. So going back to Ben Scale, so you know, you, he's he's now out of law school and he takes his first job with a guy named uh, Patrick. And I, th- and I think I know who Patrick is in real life. Um, so um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read to you just sort of a description. I think this may be the first description we get of Patrick in, at, uh, in chapter 21, a chapter called Trial and Error. Aside from coining phrases such as, that's just some mystique-ass bullshit, Patrick is also a masterful legal writer, legal writer and orator, a true and clear legal scholar of the Constitution and the rights inherent to all of us, black, white, Hispanic, and the affectionately known other group. 
but he never lost touch with his roots or failed to come through in his street cred. He kept it all very real and frank. He once told a client who'd been giving him lip, quote, son, I will climb Mount Everest for you, but I won't walk across the goddamn street for, for bullshit. So I think I know who this is. Um, so Patrick goes, and he's he's the only white guy in an African in a in sort of a a very high profile criminal defense African American firm. So Ben is the only white guy in right. all, yeah, right, right, African American law firm, right. So um, I think you had a similar experience. <laughs> what, what was your first law? What was your first law job out of out of law? This is a setup. Um, so, so Patrick Ruler is the name of the character, and Patrick Ruler truly is uh, a character that I've created. However, he reminds me of someone he, I know. He, though <laughs> I, I definitely have had a a wonderful, um, charming, and highly educational experience um, when I first got out of law school, and actually while I was in law school, working for a phenomenal lawyer who shares some of Patrick Ruler's you know qualities. Uh, named Dwight, Dwight Thomas, and Dwight Thomas is a legend of our of our association. He's a past president, and he's a legendary attorney here uh, in Atlanta and, and really all over the country. And so, one of my very first experiences was working with Dwight. And what was that like? You know, what, Dwight, what was it like? Kind of was that the first time you'd sort of been the minority in a in a uh, in a, an employment setting or. Well, I, you know, I, it was the first, you know, it was my first time working as a lawyer, first of all, uh-huh. in terms of being hired and, and working in a that's firm. that's foreign enough. Right, and that's foreign enough. And I, I happened to be the only, you know, white attorney in the firm. So, yes, that was the first time I had ever experienced that. I had worked with lots of African-American people before, and, and um, even when I worked in the hospital, um, developed really great relationships and, and had a lot of fortunately, cultural experiences um, and, and learned a lot about African-American culture from those experiences. But working with Dwight was a very unique experience because he is um, he is really exceptional in the way that he practices, but he's got his own way of practicing that works for him. He's a brilliant guy. He's a brilliant guy. Uh, he's a, and he's a very, character. He's a seasoned, and he's very much a character, and he's strongly motivated to represent people and help people and, and do it the best, the best way possible. But that still was a unique experience for me because Dwight is in high demand, he had clients who always wanted him to be, you know, his lawyer. And so we had, there was a lot of work to do with him and for him. And it was like, it was like being thrown into the fire. So that happens to, that happens to Ben. Like Ben said, Ben sort of, he's handed a murder trial. He's handed a murder case. And, um, uh, he goes, Benjamin, I've been doing this for 30 years, practicing law in every Wait, who, city. Who's, who's talking right this now? This is Patrick talking to Benjamin. Patrick, okay. Uh, Benjamin, I've been doing this for 30 years, practicing law in every situation imaginable. This ain't no big deal, man. And then he's handing him a murder case. Uh, I know you can handle it. He handed me a book and a folder. Start with the statutes the state has alleged he violated and look at the corresponding jury charges. You should be thinking of your closing argument at all times. Panicking, I asked, what about pretrial motions? And then he just sort of starts listing a bunch of things. Uh, what what was your first big trial like? What was your what was your experience of getting? Were you thrown into the fire like I, I was? Yeah, with with it was interesting. And, and with working with Dwight, I was sworn in earlier than any other 
uh, graduate at Georgia State because, you know, Dwight knows every judge in the state practically and had me down there. As soon as I passed the bar, I was down there the next day getting sworn in by one of the judges. It was, you know, a week later that I was getting sworn in in federal court almost. And literally within two weeks of being sworn in, I was arguing an appeal in the Georgia Supreme Court. So it was it was absolutely hit the road running. Um, I, I tried my first case within uh, eight months or, or maybe 10 months of working uh, with Dwight. It happened to be a murder case. And I was working that case with a, a lot of other lawyers. And uh, that was my first trial. And you know, Dwight was there for me. He was very helpful to me. So it wasn't quite as I described. But at some level, you were on your own. But I was was lead counsel in the case, and I was working the case. And um, it was was a harrowing experience. Is that the right word? It was fearful. I was fearful. I was terrified. But um, it was something that I felt I was ready to do in terms of the issues that we were dealing with. And I had great leadership from Dwight in doing it. But I I was leading the case. Okay, so you, what are you doing nowadays? So I'm now 12 years into my practice. I've been, uh, I worked with Dwight all through law school and then for three years after law school. And then I joined up with two other lawyers in Decatur, uh, Bob Rubin and Doug Peters, who have been partners for many years. I've been partners with them now for 10 years. And we specialize in very, very serious, significant cases that involve Uh, physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, a lot of medical issue type cases, um, shaken baby syndrome cases, cases that really, uh, if you're found guilty of, will guarantee the client a life sentence. We we rarely handle anything smaller than that. We do some white collar and some licensing cases. So going into a trial, someone hires you and you're going to have a jury trial coming up. What, What do you feel like is your unfair advantage over the prosecution? Like some personal skill you've developed or some, what, 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 I know you're a good lawyer. What, what do you think are some things like if, if let's just say I'm a brand new lawyer and I'm, and I want to do criminal defense and I'm into it and, and, and I want to develop some unfair advantage over the, over the prosecution just through some skill. What, what do you, what do you think, what do you think the key is to being successful? The biggest key is that you've got to do the work to, to represent your client, um, and you've got to give yourself the ability to do the work. And there's a lot that goes into doing the work, of course, but I think the, the preliminary consideration for us is what needs to be done to save this person, and we have to guarantee that we can do it. Um, because if you not take, guarantee that you'll get the result, not guarantee you get the result, but, that but guarantee that you can do the work. Mm-hmm. And the work is all about everything that you can think of to help support the, the client's innocence and their story of innocence or, or coming up with an alternate theory that you can tell to the jury and then support that with, with evidence. Is, is the key then to outwork the prosecution? The key is to, is to identify the work that needs to be done and then give yourself the opportunity to do it. And the way that we try to give ourselves the opportunity to do it is by being very proactive either with the police or being proactive with the district attorney's office or being proactive with the judge to stop the, the state's you know, prosecution train from moving forward or to stop the judge's trial calendar train from moving forward and go to the heart of those people and say, don't arrest or 
has been arrested, but don't indict. Or he's been indicted, but don't put us on a trial calendar until we tell you that we're ready. That's one key thing, because I've done some cases with you guys over the years. That's one key thing that I've taken away. That it, I don't know why I never thought about doing it that way, but before I kind of saw your technique, one thing I, I just never thought to do, um, I, I guess we're defense attorneys and we're the defendant. And so I think that there's something in our language of what we do that suggests that we play defense. And I think what I've taken from you guys is, uh, and, and the way you practice is you really play offense. I mean, and, and you come, and, and not in like an, a, not in a aggressive Rambo kind of way, but, but you play offense in the sense that you're on the phone with the investigating officer saying, hey, can you hold off on this investigation? We, there's, there's another side of the story and we want to tell you. Or if it's post-arrest, can you please give us some time before you indict so we can come talk to you? And, and, and what do you think that, what do you think the difference is in practicing that way? Well, what that does is it allows you to be in your office. It allow, if you can get the, the detective to agree, and sometimes the detective will agree to give us a week or it turns into two or three, or the state will give us, you know, 60 days, 90 days to, to come in and try to get the, you know, the meeting handled. Um, but once you get that agreement in place, then what that does is it allows you not to be, you know, running into court for calendar calls or, or, or running after certain, you know, parts of the process and you can actually work. You can make your to-do list, you can work with your investigator, you can go out and work. And what it also does is many times it puts the prosecutor or the judge or the officer onto other things. And they're not working on your case. They're not developing their theories. They're just holding the police reports. They're not even getting into it. So by the time that you work through this over three or four months and you develop your case, which in the cases that we do, they're very serious, like I said, we develop a ton of information. So when we go see the prosecutor, under that example of not indicting until we meet, we show up in the office with a box or two of work product um, where we sit down and they look at us and they say, how many cases do you have to discuss here today? And we say, well, this is this one. You know, we appreciate the time you've given us. And the prosecutor is totally taken aback and is starting to think, okay, I've got 100 cases and I got this one case with these guys and they're ready and they're telling me the client's innocent and or that the client is not guilty of the indictment. And shit, what should I do? Do I... Do I give them what they want? Do it. I need to go work and catch up. You know, it, it definitely allows you to be putting them on their heels. And it, and if nothing, I mean, strategically, yes, that's the case. And then the other thing is they see the other side. For sure. That, and that, the biggest point is that when, you know, we have to decide what we're going to say and what we're not going to say. Not every case is one where we can go out there and say our client is totally innocent. You know, we have to say it a different way. But it certainly allows us to prepare and it allows us to share with them our truth. Uh, there's a lot of lawyers that disagree about that. They don't want to. They don't want to put it out there. Uh, but believe me, we don't put anything out there that's that going to hurt you. That, that's not firm, right? That's that, that. It's beyond change. It's it's a fact beyond change, right? So t- that then all of a sudden puts us on in, on a different playing field with them compared to everything else that's easier, right? Okay. So if you could go back and speak to your just graduated out of law school self, like the, the, or the out of, the just out of law school Ben Scales, what would be the advice you would give to yourself? Uh, I think I would, what I have learned 
from working with, with Doug and Bob and, and all the ways that I've learned to try to structure my practice. And you're talking about Doug Peters, Doug Peters and, and Bob, Bob Rubin. Rubin. Yeah. I, I feel like right now I am absolutely practicing the way that is most healthy for me as a husband and as a father and as a lawyer. And I feel very, very happy about that. But I spent, you know, three years suffering through stress, you know, beyond stress as we all feel. Um, I would just like to have gotten that 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 rhythm of practice, you know, earlier. Um, that would be the only thing I would change. I mean, I, I I think that some of what I've learned now just comes with time. Um, so so maybe just trying to fast forward this process a little bit more before I was you know I had to wait four years to do it. Okay, well, I don't know if that's a great I don't know if that's a great answer, but that's, so so you would have just learned to be more proactive. To well, manage your caseload. You know what? I, I, maybe even better of an answer is to say I would have liked to have taught myself to step outside of the drama of and the emotions of the cases and really tried to maintain a 30,000-foot view of the case so that I'm not tangled up in all the traffic and the mess of the case, but I'm I'm way up high looking down kind of more as a... As a, as a master of all, seeing everything that's happening, rather than getting sucked into the emotion of it all, because that's debilitating. And what does that mean? I mean, what is what is what does the case look like from the thirty thousand foot level? Well, it it's a lot of moving parts and pieces, but it's it's ultimately about creating a a pathway for you to walk out of that. You know, if that's an island of a mess, you're trying to walk you know across a bridge to the innocence island and. And at 30,000 feet, I think you can see those moves and that pathway a lot better when you're not overwhelmed with emotion because all that's just noise. And I think, you know, if you get, if a family comes to you and there's a level of dysfunction, you can, you know, every therapist will tell you that, that it's easy to become part of that system right. if you're not careful. And right. the last thing that the client needs is another dysfunctional family member that they're paying. That's absolutely right. We could talk for days about how to structure your practice to try to get away from that and ultimately settle into a way of practicing that that removes all of that stress from you, puts it on your client, puts it on their family, you know, and, and, and lets you just lawyer. That's all you want to do. So what if I'm um what if I'm a public defender and I'm into Cab County and they, you know, I'm I'm assigned to a courtroom and they're just throwing case after case after me and I feel like I'm drowning. But I love being a public defender. I, I love the setting I'm in. Mm-hmm. And I don't have the ability to like, you, you know, to, to turn clients away. If, if, I'm in, if I'm in that setting, what, what do I do to find the kind of 30,000 level um, view or this, their sense of peace that I can, I can see that you exude, that you have? I think as quickly as possible, you have to develop a process for yourself that, that, that helps you feel that you are truly doing the work that you need to do for your clients. And that's going to be different to, to every public defender because you have 60 cases or you have 260. I mean, there's literally, you know, PDs that have that kind of caseload. And so I'm not, uh, I'm not turning an eye, a blind eye, you know, to the fact that this is stuff that, you know, may just be unmanageable. But as soon as you can develop a process and you can think about that process in, a, in, a, in an unemotional way that I need to do this item. I need to go speak to them and get their, their story. Um, 
I would encourage you to have your clients work for you and to quickly establish that your clients work for you, not you work for them. Get them to provide you with work and get them to provide you with their thoughts, you know, written down, you know, privileged work product that you can study and not have to spend time talking with them for hours and hours on end. I'm going to come back tomorrow and I want you to have written out the answers to these questions and then provide them to me so that you're not sitting there thinking of things. And, and, and once you get a system of work, make sure you do whatever that task is to the fullest extent that you can do it and then put it away and be done with it and move on to the next task. Develop a process. Yes. Delegate as much as you can, even if you're delegating to your client. Absolutely. So that you are... Or the client's family. You're, you're the coach on the sidelines calling in the plays. Right. Or you're the quarterback. Your hand-holding is going to come in the form of you being the coach. It's not going to be you actually being one of the linemen down on the line with your client. You've, you've got to remove yourself from, if we're using a football reference, right? you've got to remove yourself from the line, and you have to put yourself at least in the quarterback position, if not the coach on the sideline. Or the coordinator up in the booth. Or the, even better, the coordinator right. up in the booth. Okay. Yeah. Well, Jason, it's been fascinating. I've, I've enjoyed... Uh, uh, I've enjoyed catching up. Uh, where can people, first of all, where can people find Son of a Bitch Inspired by True Events? Where can they find your book? So if you're if you're a, a techie, you can go to Amazon and just click either for a Kindle version or you can get a, a paperback version from Amazon. It's it's also available if you go to Barnes and Noble. It's available at some other you know kind of mom and pop bookshops. Amazon's probably the easiest you know availability for you right away. And I've got a if you don't mind me saying, I've got a book signing coming up at, at Posman Bookstore at Pont City Market on November 4th, although that is going to conflict with the fall seminar. And this may and this may actually, <coughs> this may actually after come that. after that. Okay. Well, but, but, okay, so if they miss that particular book signing and they want to they want to come meet you and get you to sign a book and meet you in a bookstore setting, where can people find you? So they can come to my office indicator, <laughs> or I'll be having other signings. There's there's other signings right now that are signing up for January and February and, and next year. Uh, Posman's may be the last one this year, although I'll be at other festivals that are coming up and whatnot. And what if I want to learn more about Jason Sheffield, the author? Do you have? Are you on social media? Are you on Twitter? Yes, Facebook? it's very complicated. You can go to jasonbsheffield.com and you can learn about me and the book and see what's happening in events and the news um, and, uh, and learn all that you could possibly stand to learn. All right. Well, thanks so much. Scott, thank you, buddy. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Me too. Thank you for listening to the GACDL podcast. To hear future episodes, please be sure to subscribe. Tell your friends about us. For more information about our host, Scott Key, you can visit his website, millerandkeylaw.com. For more information about the GACDL, please visit our website, gacdl.org. The sole purpose of this podcast is to entertain, educate, and inform. It is no substitute for professional advice from a criminal defense lawyer. Guests who speak on the podcast express their own opinions, experiences, and conclusions. The GACDL neither endorses or opposes any legal strategies discussed on this podcast. If you need legal representation, please retain licensed counsel. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you join us next time.